Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to a very special episode of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. And I say very special because in this episode, we get a look at the inner workings of a publishing house through conversations with four of its staff members. So all of my guests in this podcast work for the iconic Galantz imprint, a major publisher of some of the finest literature in the fantastic tradition. And my guests bring their own individual insights to the work of Galantz, and we'll be hearing from each one of them in turn. So let me introduce them to you now. They are Stevie Finnegan, Press Officer, Marcus Gipps, Senior Commissioning Editor, Jen McMenemy, Marketing Manager, and Gillian Redfern, who's the Publishing Director of Galantz. Now, although Galantz publishes fantasy, sci-fi, and some horror, the issues raised in these conversations transcend genre boundaries and give us a fascinating insight into the inner workings of a contemporary publisher, the expectations that a publisher has of their authors, and the advice that publishing professionals would give to aspiring authors. And so my first guest in this podcast is the Managing Director of Galantz, Gillian Redfern. So do you want to just introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do here, first of all? Okay, my name is Gillian Redfern. I'm the Publishing Director of Galantz, which is the science fiction fantasy imprint for the Orion Publishing Group. Uh, I've been working in publishing for just under 14 years, uh, starting with work experience and working my way up and I've done that all within the same imprint. So Galantz uh, created and raised. So that's it, just within Galantz. That's, yep. So you you, start, you started doing work experience here and now you're the publishing director. Yes, yeah, it took a while, but yes, <laughs> that's, been, that's been the path. Okay. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences as you were growing up in terms of reading? What, what really made an impact on you in terms of books is when you were a child? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it took me a long time to learn to read. Uh, okay. I was the oldest, I was my parents' first child, and I wasn't particularly interested in learning to read. I was interested in stories, but rather than learn to read the words, I would memorise the book. So I knew which words went in which order and which page they were on. Yeah. I knew you couldn't keep going without turning the page. Uh, <laughs> but it took, them, it, took, it took my mother a little while to realise that I had not actually learned to read. At which point she always started with all sorts of horrible things like flashcards and so on. Yeah, yeah. But the interest in story always remained. Um, and my dad was a commuter and he'd come home from work in the evenings and he would sit down and read a book. Uh, so there's always this, this thing that whatever we were doing, or I was doing, however interesting it was, um, it wasn't as interesting as the book he was reading. Yeah. So we were always, yeah. I'm, I'm one of three, we were always all curious about what was going on inside the books. Yeah. And I think the first book that really, really got me hooked uh, was White Fang. And uh, from there, there was more or less no no stopping. You were off and away. Exactly, from there. yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about your other hobbies and interests? Now, I think you're interested in archery and travel, aren't you? Uh, yes, archery, travel, and then sort of knitting, cooking, relatively usual things. Archery because I wanted to do something physical and something that was a bit different. And I tried it on a holiday okay. and enjoyed it and then found a club when I came back uh, to the UK and, and took it up just after university. And I've carried on ever since. And uh, travel, I love travel. I love being somewhere that is fresh and there's a new culture to discover. There are new people. 
to look at you in pity because you're English and don't speak any useful languages. And I think it's quite useful for the uh, the job I do to go and visit a different culture, to see things which aren't familiar, yeah. because sometimes it helps feed into the editing process or feed into uh, the world that an author's trying to evoke yes. when you can suggest a, a detail that you might have or changing a detail they have uh, to something that's a little bit more evocative, a little bit, a little bit richer because you happen to have seen it somewhere, steal it from life. Now, you said you were the publishing director, so what does the publishing yep. director do? Uh, all sorts of things. I still work as an editor, so I still work with authors. I still edit manuscripts, brief covers, uh, write cover copy, uh, do all the interaction with agents. But I'm also in charge of the schedule, and I'm in charge of the money. So how much are we supposed to make? Are we making it? What happens if a book comes out of the year and suddenly we're not getting that turnover? Uh, how do I balance up the, uh, okay. the P&L? Are there any trends or patterns in the material that you're seeing at the moment that have caught your attention? Um, and I'm interested in the way AI is being used to other characters who are otherwise completely indistinguishable from humans mm. um, or from the protagonists to say, okay, these people are different and therefore can be treated appallingly. Um, and I'm finding that quite it's quite an unpleasant trend. Um, it was quite an unpleasant topic for discussion uh, that's cropping up more at the moment. It seems like it's quite topical and quite mm. interesting. I was talking not to an author recently who made the point that how we treat an AI entity, how we treat the alien, is a reflection on how we treat the other, as in a human other. And that's how they would. That's how they were going to explore that that yeah. issue. Is that the kind of yeah, thing? Exactly, exactly yeah, exactly. Exactly that kind of that kind of yeah. thing. Okay. Um, and and an element of some characters saying it's okay to do this horrible thing because the intelligence is artificial, mm. irrespective of how developed or how sensitive that intelligence might be. <clears throat> it's an interesting exploration of humanity. Mm. I suppose that although it's an unpleasant topic, the flip yeah. of that is treating the other with respect exactly. and dignity. Exactly, and is, that seems to be the way, the way that trend develops yeah. is to, to bring in that balance. Okay. Now, I, I, do you still commission, or um, you must have commissioned? I, yep, I do. Okay. I do still commission. Yeah. So when a story crosses your desk, what yeah. makes you carry on reading rather than just go, finish with that, chuck it? Um, it's, it's, it's whether or not it grabs me. Okay. And sometimes agents send me manuscripts thinking, oh, well, it's going to make a difference. That I'll have more clout than somebody else might. Um, As in, you will rather than rather setting than it to one of the editor. team. Yeah. yeah. Um, which may or may not be true. It all depends how much time and energy you have at any given moment yeah. for anything. Um, but I'm much less patient than other editors are. So I will read a couple of paragraphs. And if it's grabbed me, it's grabbed me. And if it hasn't grabbed me... The end. Then not quite the end, but pretty much. Yeah. You're like, well, if I'm, I'm, not, I'm not immediately going to come back to this, this is... Okay. And those couple of paragraphs, yep. would they always or usually be whatever's at the, you know, the, the very first paragraphs? It's usually where I start. And if I don't like it, I will flick further through into the manuscript and say, well, is this representative yeah. of the yeah. whole piece? Or is this something uh, that's out of place or non unrepresentative? So would you say that for debut authors, in particular wannabe authors... Uh, who, let's say, you're seeing their script the first time, does that first page have to really 
pack a punch in some way? Does it have to? How does that have to work with those first few paragraphs? I think I'm I'm basically looking for fluency of writing and a sense of how assured the writer is and how comfortable they are in the world and how mm. uh, powerful the voice is. Because if those things are being delivered, there's a good chance you've got something really solid there that's going to be an enjoyable read. Okay. That's interesting that you should mention your voice. So one of the people I interviewed is Lee Harris. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Lee yep. at all. And I asked him this question. Mm-hmm. I said, what do you look for in your work? And immediately he said voice. Yep. That's the thing it's he looks for. Thing. Do you do you agree with that? Would you? Obviously, well, you would. But. Yeah, I think I think I think so. I mean, it, it's it's not the be all and end all, but if the voice for the manuscript isn't working, then it you can't you can't avoid it. You can't hide it. Um, it's it's like a chef not getting the flavour combinations right. You've got to you've got to have the flavour for the the project yeah. for it to work. And you can you can work on the texture and the structure and the order. Um, you can you can vary elements of character, but if the voice doesn't work, you you're really stuck. You can't really edit out voice, or well, you don't want to edit. You it don't out want voice, to edit. No, no. no, you want to okay. take, you want to sing. If somebody wants to be published by Galantz, do yeah. would you expect them to have some kind of track record in short story publication first? At no, all? no. We, our writers come in all shapes and, and sizes and forms. Um, so some people have massive short story collections they're published and other people have no record at all they just spring out um, with a novel okay I want to talk for a minute about the challenges that a manuscript faces okay let's say somebody comes in uh, you one of your team raves about it they love it what hurdles does that manuscript have to get over before it gets published well the first one is is actual acquisition uh, which is is where not only do we have to rave about it, we then have to convince the rest of the company mm. um, that we are not mad and this does have potential. Um, and it's um, it's it's an investment. Um, we put all virtually all the money up up front. So you're saying to the company, mm. I believe we can make a profit on this. Let's acquire it um, and then do all the work to make sure that happens. Um, so that's the first hurdle. I think the second hurdle is probably the editing process, which mm. I'm sure is quite painful for manuscripts. I, authors don't always love it, so manuscripts must find it particularly difficult. Um, and it's a it's a process where you start out by saying to an author, "I absolutely love your work, and this is extraordinary. I'm I really, really want to work on it." And here's the offer. The next thing you say to them is, "Well, there are some things that would like to change that aren't quite there yet, so you want to handle that gently." Um, and make sure that they're feeling completely engaged with the process. Okay. Um, I think in terms of a hurdle, if an editor ever makes an author feel the project isn't theirs or that it's moving in a direction they don't like, that's a huge problem because you want the editing process to inspire the author to develop okay. their work, yeah. not to feel like someone is micromanaging it or peering over their shoulder because that's, that's no fun at all. I think maybe the other really big hurdle is uh, contact with readers for the first yeah. time. Um, I think for the for the author, uh, their manuscript is quite often something that their friends and family refuse to talk about any longer because they are sick to death of hearing about it um, and don't necessarily understand why their, their loved one is more interested in sitting in front of a computer for three hours than watching a film with them or cooking with them or going on a date night. So, so then, when you have when that they have contact with an editor and a company which is excited about their book, that's one thing. 
I think perhaps it's a little bit agoraphobic when your manuscript then meets readers and everybody can read it and everybody can talk about it. You yeah. start getting reviews and feedback and Goodreads ratings and so on. Yeah. I think that's another sort of hurdle for a manuscript and an author. Okay. What are the biggest problems you see in manuscripts that are coming to you from new writers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and perhaps not just you, but your, your team. There are a couple of things which we see in manuscripts which are starting to prompt us to say no to them, which, okay. which crop up. Uh, one of them is, um, we've talked about this in a few seminars actually, one of them is use of rape in manuscripts and when okay. we start seeing use of, of, of it as a trope that demonstrates a character is evil, it's not fulfilling a story function, it's not an element that the, the author wants to seriously discuss. Um, it's there as a plot function. Um, that's starting to trigger a, this isn't for us, thank you, uh, response. Um, and connected to that, there are some, there are some things that we've started suggesting writers might not open their manuscript with. So loving details, detailed descriptions of sex. It's like, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't meet someone for a coffee and launch into that. So perhaps don't, don't make it the first thing we experience in your manuscript. Um, you can save that for, for later on when everyone's comfortable and have got to know each other. Um, and writers introducing characters by having them look in the mirror and describe themselves in an admiring way because nobody has ever in the history of humanity looked in the mirror and gone, I'm stunning. Everyone's like, oh. Really, me again? No. So there are a few things like that that we're starting to say. This is, this is cliched and it's not effective, and it's also not realistic and it's not serving a manuscript very well. Stop, stop doing it. Okay. Um, just to pick up on a couple of things you said there. So, is it right to say that if if authors are using some form of abuse, perhaps yeah. as just a kind of a, a badge to say, here's the bad guy? Yeah. That's that's not working. That's, that's, that's not out. working. That is. Okay. Um, it's not necessarily lazy characterization because they kind of put a, quite a bit of work into doing it, doing mm. and delivering it. Mm. Um, but I think there are more subtle and evocative ways of demonstrating mm. who the bad guy is. Okay, your staring in the mirror comment yes reminded me of lots of conversations I had with people around authenticity. Yeah, which I think is is personally is critical to something working. Do you want to talk, talk to me about authenticity a little bit and what how you feel? About, are you looking for authenticity in your work and how should that work? Certainly authenticity, um, it's a good way to describe it. It's a good word for it, actually. Authenticity in the character's voice so you feel they are an, they are an individual mm. and you can get a handle on who they are and how they might behave mm. is enormously effective. It's very powerful in the book and you, you know when a character feels authentic and when they don't. Um, How do you know when a character feels authentic, um, do you think? I think it's the same way that the reader does. You you can recognise which character is talking before you you mm. get the obvious clue that this is yeah. Logan Ninefingers or somebody else. And you don't get jolted out of their perspective or a scene with them by something which strikes an off note. It all feels very comfortable, and um, you're prepared to trust that the author's taking you somewhere good. You might not be able to see where you're going, but you know it's going to be enjoyable. Yeah. So yeah. that, I think, okay. all adds to a, a sense of 
authenticity um, and also in the world building when you as a reader you feel comfortable in the world you're not questioning details you're not feeling that something is missing because you know the information is there or has been worked out so you're not you're not trying to second guess the details of the currency you've got enough detail mm. information that mm. you know it's all going to work out um, that sort of sense that it's all been thought out properly um, mm. is very reassuring I think to a reader lets you focus on the story and the adventure rather mm. than than all the details and with world building do you think there is a happy medium somewhere is, is it a spectrum between it's wrong if there's too little and the reader doesn't feel secure yeah but it's wrong if there's too much and the reader's got bored stupid because you keep talking about absolutely just the details or the cobblestones or whatever it is you want to yes yes and there's a there's a difference between doing the research so that when you write about forestry in your fantasy world it feels like it's a real business mm. um, and doing so much and then presenting the reader with your research um, that you've, you've actually written an, an essay on the forestry business rather than rather than generated it as a corner of your world. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned not launching into the kind of steamy sex scene on page one. Yeah. One of the things I'm dealing with now in my podcast is not the genre, but specific scenes. So combat scenes, action scenes, and romance scenes. Um, are there anything that you would say by way of advice to writers on either of those types of scenes so like either action combat or and or romance scenes possibly uh, there's some debate about whether a romance scene is the same as a sex scene but those kinds of things um i've been talking to a couple of authors about writing combat uh recently there was a there was um a reenactor and weapons expert at fantasy con sparked a lot of conversations Mm. um and the conversation was interesting because two or three authors were saying they'd been a part of this conversation and there's quite often an emphasis on in panel discussion on you must know how it works, you must understand the moves, you must portray it accurately mm-hmm. to the reader. Um, and they were particularly impressed by this conversation because it moved to, you know, what you have to convey is an impressive and powerful fight scene. And if you haven't quite accurately described the thrust of the weapon at the given moment and exactly the accurate sort of impact it has, that doesn't matter so long as it's not wildly wrong um, and you, what you end up with is a compelling fight scene. It's not about a technical and then this sword went here and this spear went here. Um, you want to know how hard it is, how heavy it is, how does the character feel when it's happening, what does it feel like to be struck with a lance rather than, rather than how, what was the precise angle and the technical name for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, I think that's very true. Um, and that, that balance of it does work as a fight. It is possible for two people to fight in the way you're describing. Mm-hmm. But we don't need every technical detail is a very smart observation. That sounds almost like the happy medium with world building, but yeah. translates into action. Into action. Really. And, and perhaps the relationship between the protagonist, the implement they've got, and whoever's on the receiving end. Yeah. And if we carry that over into like romance scenes, mm-hmm. the romance scenes can exist within the genre. They're not, yeah. well, I'm not talking about the romance genre as a whole, but just within in the fant- fantastic. What would you be looking for in those kinds of scenes? A sense that the characters are having fun. Um, 
I'm not sure how much how much uh, well it's up to an author how much detail they want to include mm-hmm. how how much they want to be like well this hand went here and this hand went there and the third hand was over here and like, okay so long as there's a sense that the characters are enjoying themselves and that it's not just to entertain a reader it's not a box ticking scene um, it's got legitimacy within their relationship and it is it is relevant that the scene is included or is alluded to um, then great everyone everyone is is a consenting adult in that in that scenario who's got into something that they wanted to so yeah that's that's is it doing something for the story is it doing something for the characters and um, is it effective and if it's if it's none of those things the scene shouldn't exist and if it's a couple of those things then the scene needs some work to make sure it's delivering on all fronts and do, does delivering mean things like is it actually bringing pushing the story forward yeah um do we care about the characters precisely that kind of that kind of thing. Thing. so it's it's almost this kind of authenticity Again, because two characters we don't care about, we don't care what they do, whether they hit each other or make love or what they do, I suppose. Well, exactly. They could sit down and play Scrabble for three hours, and if they enjoy playing playing Scrabble, that might actually cement the relationship more effectively. (laughs) (laughs) Now, without indulging in any favouritism, are there any new titles from Galantz that particularly have drawn your attention recently or you're particularly excited about? Anything that has come out recently, or even stuff that may be coming out in in the next few months that you're particularly excited about? Uh, this year I've been quite spoiled because I've worked on some fantastic manuscripts. So um, The Fireman by Joe Hill, mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant. I would recommend to anyone. Um, and uh, it's it's a really, really good thriller, apocalyptic story, fantastic main female character who battles through all sorts of horrendous things. Um, I loved the uh, Sharp End short story collection by Joe Hill. Joe Hill, Joe Abercrombie, too many Joes. <laughs> Because it gives some really, really good uh, snip, snippets of characters' backstories and mm. the development of their stories and new characters. Um, it's a masterclass in voice and in action. Um, and there's a particular story about Glockta in there, which I thought was stunning. Yeah. Made a monster. It's brilliant, brilliant short story. And Revenger by L. Reynolds is probably yes. the other one that I'd, I'd single out as being something which which was an absolute joy to read and to work on. Mm. Um, it's it's um, two teenage protagonists, uh, both girls, who run away from a, from a safe but dull middle-class existence to join a pirate ship um, and have, have some fantastic adventures. Mm. Really well done. I think both of the girls are really, really well drawn. And uh, probably Joanne Harris is the other author, mm. where it's been a real revelation how brilliant... Uh, rune marks and rune light are mm-hmm. two Norse mythology, two, two stories based on Norse mythology. Again, uh, young female protagonists, um, and uh, she brings Norse mythology to life in a really contemporary, very accessible way. Mm-hmm. Huge focus on story all the way through. So that's been huge fun. Okay. And if you had one or two bits of advice to give to aspiring writers, people that would love to have their work published by Glantz. Yeah. What would what would they, they be? What would those bits of advice be? To keep writing and to keep writing for as long as it's enjoyable for them. So long as they're enjoying writing, they should be writing. If they're not enjoying it or the sole point is to be published, I think there might be better things and more enjoyable things they can mm. do with their time. 
Um, so that would be one. Um, I think um, always remembering that publishing is a business. It's very, very healthy. Mm. And there's always, it's always sort of the dream is... Do you want to just elaborate on that? Because I think I know what you mean by that. Bus- okay, that it's a business. Um, that there are people in publishing. Publishing is full of people who love stories. They love writers. Yeah. They absolutely... They, I mean, they, they live day in, day out, breathing in books, promoting books, trying to get mm. books into the hands of readers. But at the same time, the the industry is a business. So it is its purposes to make money from getting books from one person's hands mm. and mind into someone else's hands and mind. And it's worth remembering that at the end of the day, there will be a business decision about a book, which mm. uh, is, is a, a business reality, which is not necessarily what the people who love working on books want, or, or it might be exactly what everybody wants. It might be that it's a, it's a business decision that means everything's going brilliantly, uh, but it does come down to being a business. And that, that, that element of it is worth keeping in mind, but also keeping separate from, if you're enjoying writing, then your pleasure from writing has nothing to do with how much you're paid for it or how successful a published book is. Mm. The two are, okay. the two are different things. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. And one last question. Yep. Just on the, I was quite intrigued by what you said about how authors engage with editors. Yeah. Because quite a lot of editors, I've, in fact, quite a lot of authors I've spoken to say to me and I say to them, take it on the chin. The editor's there to help you. It will. It is an emotional experience being editing, but yeah. it's there on your side, that kind of thing. Now, what, yeah. what's your perspective on that kind of dialogue with it? With an author? Yes, the editor is on the author's side. It's um, The editing process is trying to make sure that the words on the page correctly convey the image in the author's mind to the reader's mind. So the editor isn't necessary or shouldn't, I think, be there to interpret. You're there to, to say, this is what you've written, this doesn't work, or this needs to be developed, or in order to convey what you want to convey, you need to approach this element of the story in another way. So it's about bringing out the intentions and making them as clear and effective and powerful as possible. Mm. And I think when an editor is approaching a manuscript, that needs to be what's in mind, because it's not the editor's work. Um, The editor's name may never appear anywhere near the book, ever, throughout its lifetime. It's the author's work, and it's their pride and joy. So it needs to be a, a question of polishing what they've done and making sure it's the best version of itself it can be and helping to to try and make sure the author feels inspired by that process rather than yeah. exhausted um, okay. so yeah and it, it also it should be fun if at all possible it should be fun because you've got someone who's um potentially for the first time engaging or with an agent with the second time engaging with your work and thinking it's wonderful and wanting to talk about it and to develop it and to make something wonderful from it. So it should also be fun. Not always, but it should be. <laughs> okay, well, Gillian, thank you very much. No problem, thank you very much. That was great. Good, good. My next conversation is with the press officer, Stevie Finnegan. So, uh, Stevie, do you want to just introduce yourself then to us and tell us what you do here? Okay, um, I'm Stevie Finnegan and I'm Glance's press officer. So I get in contact with newspapers, uh, the radio, various people online and try and help our books find their market. Okay, thank you. So, um, 
You've told us a, 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 very briefly what you do. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Mm. Things are changing more and more, especially for sci-fi and fantasy publishing, because you often will find that traditional newspapers won't give as much space to a fantasy book or a sci-fi book as they would to a history book or a biography. Okay. Uh, but also there are less newspapers around this day, these days. The independence already gone, um, circulation is falling, and more people are reading what's on their Facebook feeds or on Reddit. So how do you try to do your job when some of the people that you would engage with seem to be disappearing or the, the circulation's dropping? Sometimes it's finding uh, the new media. It's finding that people are reading Boing Boing and Wired and such, and it's approaching them and seeing in what ways you can work with them. Sometimes it's not as straightforward as they'll take a book and review it. It's finding out if an author can write a piece for them, if they'd like to mm. be interviewed, if there's some kind of alternative way for them to appear on their site and for news that they've got a new book coming out that their readers might want to read, mm. get across there. And do you normally charge these publications or is it a kind of we'll provide you content and you provide us I, profile? I think the days of publishers, at least if I'm approaching someone, maybe if an author is approaching a website directly, they'll yeah. say, here's an article I'd like to write for you. I'd like to be paid for writing that article. <laughs> uh, I think even with uh, newspapers, traditional newspapers, it's um, getting kind of less and less that people are paying for articles. And it's, here's something if you want... Um, publicity which is a horrible way for the world to work but is often the way i'm trying to get around things okay now do you get involved in the acquisition process at all a little bit uh it's mostly editorial but uh often uh when books come in that we're considering buying i'll be consulted uh, I'll be asked where do I think the publicity for this book lies are the publicity opportunities is this a book that's just going to sell by being on the shelf or is this uh, an author who's going to get interviewed everywhere because they're a celebrity in some other right or they've discovered something amazing um, and I'll give yeah the kind of publicity opinion whereas the editors will say this is a good book we should get this book because it's a good book <laughs> my understanding is the editors they they have to pitch the book in a sense and they're mm. pitching it to a lot of people mm. in, inside the business mm. to start with so i suppose they would come to you and say what can you do to to publicize yeah the author or the book or both i'll often represent the book publicity wise to the rest of the company saying i think we should buy this book because there's great publicity opportunities okay. but also um i'll sometimes uh be representing the company to an author saying you should come with us you should publish with glance rather than another sci-fi and fantasy publisher because we will do so much more for you we have better oh, ideas okay. we will get better publicity than yes. any other publisher would Okay, so you're selling you're selling the business to the author Sometimes. as much as the author's coming to the business. <laughs> yes. Okay. So from your point of view, what does the ideal author do? So I mean in terms of mm. helping you to do your job, mm. what's the kind of thing that you want authors authors to do and to, to help themselves, if you like? Um, I mean it's different for different authors and different kinds of books. Some authors will have great connections. They'll be best friends with journalists and they'll do your work for you, which is fantastic. Uh I think the best thing an author can do is engage with their fans as they kind of make them uh, if they're a mm. debut. I've had some authors who actually they don't have um, very many traditional publicity opportunities because often because their genres are looked at quite scornfully so they won't get into kind of the broadsheets or things like that. But they have 
100,000 likes on Facebook and uh, a million Twitter followers and their fans are there and they feed them information every week of what they're writing at the moment. They'll do giveaways for new books. They'll engage with other authors in their genre and swap fans and they'll just be personally cultivating this huge legion of people who want to read them and are desperate for the next book every time a new one comes out. So what would your advice be to, let's say an author has approached clients and and they have the potential to be taken on. Mm. What would, from a publicity point of view, what's mm. your advice to an author, especially uh, a debut author perhaps? I think a good social media presence is key. Uh, this can be in different ways, and you don't have to be everywhere. You don't. Maybe Facebook isn't the right isn't the right avenue for your kind of book, um, but maybe it's Twitter, or maybe it's Instagram, or maybe it's Goodreads, uh, or Tumblr. Or whatever. Even if you've if you've cultivated one or two uh, different areas of the internet where you can show that you have a solid fan base that are interested yeah. in the fact yeah. that you are writing something, or that you write articles, or that you've posted sneak peeks of kind of the kind of stuff mm. you'd like to write, uh, that's fantastic. You're guaranteeing that there's already an audience out there. You're showing a publisher what kind of reactions people might have if you can get the book in front of them. Mm. Okay. Um, are you able to? Give us any little case studies of particular authors that you've worked for mm. and what you've done for them at all. Well, this is the thing. It varies so much depending mm. on the author. We have Stephen Baxter in the office today. Do you? Uh, ah, yes. okay. Is he the person you're looking after? Yes. Uh, and he's already a household name. Yes. So yeah. it's often cultivating which is the best publicity to do for him. Um, it's cultivating what is the right publicity to do yeah. because... Some newspapers won't follow each other. You've got to pick which one you want to do because they won't all do it. Same with radio shows and stuff. So you're trying to pick which maybe have the broadest reach or which have the best reach for this author, which have the, which get to the most people who actually buy books, things like that. With smaller authors, it can literally be kind of bringing you out of nothing. It can be doing some really basic uh, media training, saying this is how Twitter is. This is maybe you should sign up to it. Mm. And here are other authors to follow. I think Glance is really good for debuts because it has things like its own festival. So once a year, all the authors gather together and meet each other and make Mm. friends. And I've seen authors from around the world who come to me at the end of Galantzfest and say, can you send me his books? Because those sound really interesting yeah. and I want to read those as well. And yeah. then they talk about each other to their fan bases and swap fans and such. So, Because some people won't know when that is. Can you tell yeah. us when the, the Galantz Festival is? Well, uh, every year so far, it's been kind of in the autumn. Okay. We're still debating the date for next year. Oh, okay. I think it's going to be at the beginning of November next year, but nothing confirmed okay, yet. Okay, so fractionally later yeah, than Yeah, a bit later year. than this year where it's been in September yeah okay um now perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself how did you how did you get to be the press officer at Guyance so I have worked in publishing for a little while uh before here I did some maternity cover for different publishers and I worked at an adult non-fiction publisher uh called Icon Mm-hmm. And there I did books of all sorts. <laughs> I did books about motherhood, uh, some serious science books, history, biographies, silly books about punctuation. It was a very different experience because mm. there, every single book I would be going to completely different journalists. I'd be going yes. to the science journalists or I would be going to the history magazines. Uh, whereas this, uh, because basically every book I look after is sci-fi and fantasy, I'm often going to the same journalists. Yeah, and going to yeah. the same magazines, the same reviewers. 
but I also have looked at books a lot in my personal life as well. I run a YouTube channel where I talk about books. Okay. What's that called? uh, Feel free to pitch your YouTube channel. (laughs) My YouTube channel is uh, Sable Court, not spelt how you'd think, which is helpful (laughs) for a podcast. Uh, But for instance, I uh, long before I had the job here, I managed to come in and uh, interview a few of their authors. So it was kind of getting known slightly, getting to know the business slightly. So how is it spelt? How is Sable Court spelt? Uh, Sable is spelt like Sable. So S-A-B-L-E. Yeah. Uh, Court is spelt like to catch. Ah, so not C O U R T. That's what everyone thinks. And That's that what make, I thought. Yeah, that would make much more sense. <laughs> um, it's basically almost like a standard fantasy name that kind of is just syllables and doesn't really have any meaning behind it. But uh, I started my channel six years ago. And what sort of things do you cover on it? Uh, I do author interviews. I do reviews. Uh, sometimes I just uh, write pieces that I'm interested in and write things about my life. Yeah. But I think it shows. It showed at least uh, to people I was trying to get jobs with that I had an interest in books yeah, uh, sure. and that I could publicise myself online yeah. as well. Yeah, I guess that's a great great way to sell. If you can sell yourself, then you can <laughs> yes. sell, sell authors, can't you? <laughs> One thing I want to pick up on, you you kind of implied that there's a little bit of snobbery around genre, mm. a different genre. Mm. Do, do, you want to, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Is, are, is, are the fantastic genres like The Poor Cousin a little bit, or is that not yeah, the case? Yeah, it can be harder. I think... I personally think there's still, um, well, first of all, that genre is looked down upon as opposed to literary, but also that even within genre, I think it's often harder for women's uh, subjects like paranormal romance. Mm. Paranormal romance hardly ever gets mainstream reviews in Mm. genre magazines and such, which I think is a shame because we have some amazing paranormal romance authors that sell amazingly well because they are connected with their audience, but they do it often themselves rather than through a kind of third-party media partner. Yeah, We have a publicity team in Orion that kind of works across everything, although I am the Galantz publicist. <laughs> so you have colleagues who are other colleagues who are working in publicity. Do you, do you guys specialise in certain areas then? Mm. Do you kind of... Yes. Share ideas. How do you, how yeah. do you work with the other? It works publish? quite well. Um, a lot of us do have specialisms. Mm. Uh, for instance, one of my colleagues works on all the cookbooks. Uh, okay. One of my colleagues kind of looks after crime, but um, the the barriers aren't that kind of stayed. We have a few Galance authors who are looked after by my colleagues, and as I said, I look after a few non Galance authors. But it is really good um, to sit there in meetings sometimes and say, other ideas for this book that I'm not thinking of because I'm not thinking outside the traditional sci fi sure. fantasy box. Yeah. And other people uh, can come to you and say, oh, I was just talking to this media outlet that maybe you would never have mm. approached because they normally do crime, but I think this would fit with it really well. Are, are you able to tell us any of the sort of key people that you would want to talk to if you were going to promote mm. a big mm. book in, a, in a, any fantasy genre maybe it mm. depends on the, the genres I don't mm. know or subgenre who 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 do you go after? Hmm. I mean, really depends on the book, but so let's say you're. Let's. I mean, you mentioned um, paranormal romance mm. earlier. If you had a fantastic title, mm. paranormal a romance title, mm. and you really wanted to break it out, yeah, get it out there. Who would you go to? They're often the traditional places, and I think I would just have to try and persuade them that this was really worth their time to look at. Mm. Um, the the Guardian, um, the Sun, the Telegraph. A lot of them do uh, roundups of sci-fi and fantasy. The Sun. It well, does. there you go. That's been like something today. <laughs> it's it's odd because not all newspapers do, and and sometimes yeah. it's really hard to 
get into them at all when you're genre but um the sun actually does quite a few and they'll often be quite small tiny little reviews not kind of page long things you might find in longer publications but they go to so many people that uh, enough people kind of catch the eye and are interested it's worth it isn't it and it means that if someone passes that um that book in waterstones they'll actually pick it up because they've said oh i've heard of this but um I love uh, the UK genre magazines, uh, SFX and Sci-Fi Now and Starburst. I think if you can get a book in there, that's really good. But also just building it up from kind of from the ground up, talking to bloggers. And then if you get a hundred amazing blogger reviews, you can then go to these kind of print publications mm. and say, look how much everyone else has liked it. This is special. Oh, that's interesting. So so is there is there like a hierarchy of outlets or media outlets or, or content providers that if you, if you score with mm. one group, you could kind of move up? Mm. To a certain extent. And to a certain extent, that's just reach. If yeah. this blogger is read by 10 people and this blogger is read by 100 people and this newspaper is read by 100,000 people. <laughs> you kind of want to get to the one that's read by 100,000 people. Yeah. But at the same time, sometimes you get to the bigger blogger by the smaller bloggers and yeah. you know you show that this yeah. isn't just... Because there's so many other books out there. There's so much you're competing with. There's often so many good books. You have to prove that yours is just a step above the yeah. rest. And what, what sort of thing do you enjoy? Do you have time to read at all? What do you enjoy mm. reading? I, I read sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, I read um, a lot of children's as well, actually. Okay. Um, but this this is why I really wanted to get into this job. Yeah. I, as I said previously, I was re- working in adult nonfiction, and uh, before I got that job, I remember looking back at my previous years worth of reading, and I think out of about a hundred books, I'd read six nonfiction books. That, that just just that you could choose to read yourself, not because you had to professionally. Mm. I, I read more nonfiction when I worked in nonfiction, yeah. sure. um, and now I probably read more Galance, but I always read a lot of Galance anyway yeah. because Galance has my favourite authors uh, easily. Okay. Um, so it's nice to uh, feel like reading them is something I'm meant to do because I've already done it. <laughs> <laughs> so and what sort of children's titles have you read that you really enjoyed? Hmm. I read a lot of YA. I, yeah. um, I love attending things like Yelk and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of the um, YA and uh, sci-fi and fantasy often kind of really cross into each other. Like Brandon Sanderson has his sure. kind of YA series yes. and such like that. I really liked um, The Graces by Laurie, which came out uh, earlier this year from Hachette Children's. Okay. Uh, that was a kind of YA witchy book, yes. which is really great. Yeah. But, um, um, and what about from the kind of Galant stable? Are, mm. you, are you allowed to say who you like? Or is that favouritism? I so. Well, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I like a lot of authors across Galantz. Uh, My, well, the ones I've read kind of previous to working here will be no surprise in that they're the Brandon Sanderson's, the Scott Lynch's, the Joe Abercrombie's of the world. But since working here, I've read a lot more of kind of the smaller authors who I might not have noticed uh, beforehand, like Tom Toner, like Alex Lamb, and they're brilliant. I want to bring them to other people's attention as working here has brought them to mine. (laughs) So is it easier, is it an easier task for you when you're, working when i don't know you you're going to pitch something from brandon sanderson for, mm. for example is that an easier pitch no. than tom toner or those other guys Norways, oddly enough brandon is huge in so many ways yeah. he sells so many books he just had a huge movie deal and yet fantasy is often harder to get reviews for than sci-fi i think is it i think so wow why do you think why do you think that is I think sci-fi kind of edges on the literary a bit more. You have things like Margaret Atwood and yes. David Mitchell, 
and yeah. uh, that where you have Christopher Priest, who of course he'll get kind of reviews in the literary papers. Whereas, yeah, fantasy, although it's understood to be widely read, I mean, everyone, every, every newspaper, no matter how kind of much it tries to ignore genre, can't ignore Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> True. It's just yeah. assumed that it kind of doesn't really need to be reviewed. And is that, do you think that's genre snobbery? I think it is a bit. The thing is, fantasy will be reviewed really widely on BookTube, where I live. Yeah. Um, so I think it is um, partially just changing media. I don't think it's reviewed as much in newspapers, but maybe that will change as where reviews are found is more on the internet mm. and less in newspapers. I'm interested in this kind of genre snobbery thing and, and mm. the kind of you know genre versus literary. Mm. Do you think that's breaking down a little bit now, or do you think it it's actually still as it ever was? Uh, I'm just remembering an article The Guardian published, I think back in 2015, when Terry Pratchett just died, called uh, Get Real, Terry Pratchett is Not a Literary Genius, or something along those lines. <laughs> and I think they published it because they knew the outrage it would cause, <laughs> but they still published it. <laughs> so it was The Guardian's version of clickbait or something, was yeah, it, just to get people yeah. wound up? <laughs> But you have it a lot, like I said, I read a lot of children's fiction as well. Yeah. You have it a lot with children's fiction as well. If something is written for a YA audience, it's obviously rubbish, which I very much disagree with. And sort of thinking about the future then, what's your job going to look like in the future, do you think, what are you going to be doing in hmm. a year or two or five years' time? I think, well, you'll talk to Jen at some point soon, who's my colleague in marketing. Mm. I think publicity and marketing are going much more hand in hand and they're crossing over a lot more. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the divide between them is getting more and more confused. As you're pitching to bloggers and creating things for blogs and websites, mm. the line between marketing where you are creating things and publicity where you're pitching to other people to create things is kind of going more and more mm. i think it will be more and more online i think it will go more and more to new media to youtube to podcasts to websites uh, i think it's gonna be interesting though mm. I, think I, think yeah. <laughs> I think it'll be better better for genre yes yes <laughs> i think yeah you may well be right i think genres will be more suited to the new media isn't it okay. yes Okay. Is there anything else that you wanted to tell us, Stevie, about your role? Anything that particularly excites you about your job or anything that you're doing you say, I need, I'd like to share this with you? I guess actually um, something maybe I should have added earlier with kind of what mm. authors can do, especially... Yeah, yeah, something on that would be really useful. Actually. I think if you're UK-based at least, this probably goes for a lot of places, but I know the UK, I think going to genre conventions, if you're a genre writer, can mm. be great. You get to meet important people in the industry, whether that's journalists, other authors, mm. other people in publishing houses, bloggers. Mm. And um, also no piece of publicity is, is too small. I do everything while you can. It's only when you get inundated and you're being, you've got too many requests that you can possibly fill. But I think at the beginning, do 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 blog blog posts i think some people yeah. can think oh they don't really matter but i think they really do yeah so stevie thank you very much for joining us thank it's you. been thank you for interesting me. to hear what you so just just to recap there so you are the press officer i'm the press Pankalance. officer for glance yes okay great <laughs> my next conversation is with marcus gibbs senior commissioning editor so perhaps we could start by uh, you introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do here at Galant. Sure. Well, hello. I'm Marcus Gipps. I'm the commissioning editor at Galant, which is part of the Orion Publishing Group. I've been here for coming up to six years now. Before that, I was a bookseller at Blackwells on Charing Cross Road. Um, 
and various other branches over the years. I was with Blackwells for about nine years. I had originally thought of getting into publishing, but discovered actually I really love book selling. I just really enjoyed doing that. So mm. I sort of went from a Christmas tent to ending up being events manager and shop floor manager and all sorts of things. Um, but then the vacancy at Galant came up. I knew some of the Galant's editorial staff because we drank in the same pubs from time to time. We went to the same parties. Uh, and they suggested it might be worth my while trying to apply, and I was lucky enough to get through the interviews and get the job. I think the thing that had um, perhaps prompted them to, to think of me was that I, um, my New Year's resolution for about five years in a row, I suddenly realised I hadn't written anything creative, well, not creative, critical, I hadn't written anything creative either, uh, anything critical since I left university. So I decided right. to keep a blog of every book I read, which obviously okay. as a bookseller is quite a lot. That would be quite a busy blog, I think. Yes. Um, but of course a lot of what I read was genre stuff, Galant stuff. And so I think yeah. that they spotted those and realised that yeah. I could, you know, think critically yeah. about books, have opinions and back them up. So Okay. So you are a commissioning editor here. Yes. So what does the a commissioning editor do at Galant? Well, it is basically two quite separate roles. There is the commissioning and then there is the editing. And the editing process, of course, includes the reading of the books and the tweaking and the suggesting and the making changes. Um but it's also about all the in-house stuff. It's about being a champion for the book so that the sales team know why we think we can sell copies of it. So mm. the marketing team and the publicity team uh, and the foreign rights team and everybody knows what's going on and why the book is something we're excited about. We are basically the hub for all of those different departments in the production of the book. We are also the people who, you know, um, brief the covers and write the copy for the back and write the Amazon copy. All that stuff is, is, is great fun. The commissioning bit is, is when you get to, you get to go out and look for new voices that you want to bring onto the mm. list. And, and that's obviously very, very pleasing and a very important part of the job. In terms of the time it takes, there's a lot of reading for that, mm. but you don't, um, you don't commission an awful lot because obviously Glant has quite a stable and full list of authors anyway. Mm. So would it, are you able to say how many new authors you would take on in a year? Can you, is there even an answer to that question? I mean, it is absolutely uh, a flexible answer. The normal goal between the three editors in Galantz would be three new titles a year. So one each. I say new titles. I mean, new authors to the list. Authors, Obviously, yeah. we are recommissioning authors who are already with us. But the goal, the goal is not quite the right word. We generally aim to think about one each per year. But of course, if the right book comes in, we're never not going to buy it. Um, in mm. 2011, I believe we had seven debuts. Is that quite right? No, maybe 2012 was seven, and the year after, I think we only had two. So it does fluctuate. Okay. But we have to be aware of the consistency of the list, and we want to make sure we're covering all the sort of major points of the genre. So sometimes it is a question of we have a gap here, or we feel like we might want some more hard science fiction. And obviously, if the right type of book comes in at the right time, that's lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so much of it is about luck. I mean, you know, if I've just bought an amazing epic fantasy, the chances are the next epic fantasy that lands on my desk is going to be slightly less likely to be bought. That said, if it's a great book and I fall in love with it and I can see how to publish it and, you know, why we want to do it, then of course we'll always make the case and go for it. But there's no doubt that when things land on our desk can be a little bit of a roll of the dice. Okay. It's also partly why I always say to authors, I mean to agents as well, but, but to authors, it's always worth resubmitting. Even if I've turned down something from you before, it doesn't mean I'm going to turn down the next thing. Okay. Anything might be different. Yeah. Don't send the same book again, though. That, no, that no that's not what you meant at all. <laughs> Are there particular trends or developments in the genre at the moment that are interesting you or your colleagues or anything that you think, actually, this is quite an interesting theme that I'm seeing at the moment? 
Well, I can think of a couple of things. Uh, one of them is sort of actually the opposite of that, in that we seem to be seeing a lot more horror in our submissions. And I'm not sure okay. that I can see the market going that way. It certainly isn't at the moment. Of course, there are there are individual cases in horror who are doing very nicely. I mean, our own Joe Hill, for a start, mm. um, Adam Neville. There are, there are certainly people who are making three, but I don't see the wholesale resurgence of horror in the way that I think some of the agents and we deal with and some of the authors who submit directly to us do. Possibly I'm wrong. The trouble is we won't know. If in 18 months <laughs> suddenly there's a huge boom and we don't have any... Um, so I, th- I mean, I, I, it's just one of those things where it feels like there's a movement going on and I, I'm not sure where it's coming from. And I okay. don't personally think that that's what we're waiting for. Right. Beyond that, I mean, the fact is for any list like ours, epic fantasy trilogies are the bread and butter. I mean, that's the stuff which always does well. It can be slightly harder to break a science fiction author through sometimes. I think we tend to find that there's... And, and fantasy. And fantasy. Uh, okay. I think we tend to find that there's a... And I am, as we always have to do, generalising wildly, and I can think of half a dozen examples that would make what I'm about to say wrong. But <laughs> in general, I think there's a smaller flaw for science fiction. I think I think there's a certain core of people out there who will buy it no matter what, to a certain extent. But I think the ceiling is quite low as well compared to where you can get with an epic fantasy. I mean, obviously there is the triumvirate of science fiction writers in the UK, Ian Banks, sadly, no longer, uh, Peter F. Hamilton and Alistair Reynolds, who are the three who really lead the way. Yes. But but beyond that, I I think we reach an upper limit slightly quicker than we do with fantasy. I think with fantasy, you you can reach out to a wider audience if you get it right. The corollary of that, of course, is that most publishers have quite a lot of epic fantasy on their list, which can make yeah. it harder to bring one above yeah. the above the crowd. Is fantasy a bigger market than science fiction? Though? Yes, very much so. Okay. And do you commission both fantasy and science fiction, you personally? Yep. Fantasy, SF, bit of horror. We have a nice stable here at Glance of what, I, what you might call literary SF. I always slightly yeah. row back from that term because I don't think the two things should need to be separated out. Yeah. But I'm thinking of people like Christopher Priest or Mary Gentle or Adam Roberts, yeah. where they're sort of doing slightly more... Um, they're not, they're not doing the more genre-ish stuff, although they're bringing in mm. genre elements, of course. Um, those books can be tricky because you're, you're, uh, not particularly those authors, but I mean, those kind of books can be tricky because you're looking to sort of um, find some common ground between the literary market and the SF market. And, and that can mm. be quite a small Venn diagram at times. Although I think, interestingly, that is one which is, which is widening. We're seeing mm. more, mainstream acceptance in the bookshops in the book trade of things which I would call genre books which have been published on mainstream lists okay we've always had of course your Margaret Atwood or your, yeah. or your people like that but I, I just I think I think mainstream literary lists have dropped a few of their barriers and they're not saying oh it's set in the future it's not for us they're looking at them more seriously Hmm. Um, so when a story crosses your desk, and perhaps this is like a kind of cross-genre or genre-neutral question, what makes you continue to read it rather than go rejection pile? That's that's difficult. First of all, it's almost like the other question which we always get asked, which is, what are you looking for? And the answer is, I don't know. A book I really, really like, and I know it when I see it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the most obvious thing is is quality of writing, because, and that, I would break that down into two parts. One is just sheer competency. Not so much from agents, but with direct submissions, some people literally can't string a sentence together. And of course we can work with that. I mean, we have authors who are dyslexic, we have authors okay. who are, um, and, you know, they require a bit of a heavier touch in the mm. proofreading and the editing. But if you can't write a sentence, or even worse, if you can but you just haven't bothered to proofread your book properly and it's full of errors I, I, I find that that puts me off no matter how good I think the idea is no matter how interested I am in the concept if I'm finding it hard work to read the book I don't want to 
necessarily publish it unless I can instantly see what I can do to make it better or to make it better in my eyes at least. Mm. I guess the other one is after that, you know, solidly competent writing, which is absolutely great. And that's when it all gets a bit more hard to define. I mean, a book really needs to grab me. It needs to not necessarily do something I haven't seen before, but it has to at least do it interestingly. If you're going to take Mm -hmm. the tropes of heroic fantasy, well, that's fine. There are lots of people who know who like read those books because they like to know to a certain extent what they're getting, but still it needs to be done well and interestingly. Um, I, again, I can think of more exceptions to this than I can actual examples, but I still stand by it. I sort of feel that any really good book that has, that is going to have a chance in the market. And of course we have to think about that. We have to think about, are we going to sell enough copies to make this worth our while? Because if we don't, we won't be around for very long. But I think a book needs at least two of three things. It needs a really good plot that draws you in really good characterization so that you really care about the characters or it needs to be written wonderfully. And I think books can get away with having two of those. Which two? Much more comes down to a matter of the editor's personal taste at that point. You know, I I personally am relatively happy if the plot is not particularly groundbreaking or fascinating, but if it's brilliantly written with characters who I want to spend time with, I'm quite happy to spend time with those characters yeah. and enjoy the writing. For yeah. other people, they'll say it's plot and character first, and if the writing is, is workmanlike, then that's absolutely fine. And I mean, I wouldn't want to name any names, but if you look at the uh, bestseller list, I think you'll find quite a few of the people who are very good at plot and character and perhaps not quite so good at prose, mm. and they do very nicely indeed. There's nothing wrong with that. So yeah, that's not a hard and fast rule, but for me, if a book ticks two of those boxes really well and the other one is all right, then it's something which I think... You can I, work I, with I, that, maybe. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think... Yeah, I'm not saying that you can completely get rid of one of those things. I think, you know, if the plot is just not there, it's just characters sitting around having a nice cup of tea, having a nice chat, and it's brilliantly done, well, that's great, but it's not something that I think we can sell. So a related question, I think, to something we've already talked about, what are the the biggest problems that you see in the manuscripts that are coming across your desk now, now, like in the last few weeks on them, maybe? I'd like to sort of separate this a little into stuff that's coming in from agents and stuff that's coming in... Directly. Uh, so a, a bit of background. Galantz used to have an open submission policy. Uh, and then we were moving offices and it was a time of quite a lot of upheaval for us. Mm. So we decided to put that on hold, not least because we didn't want people sending stuff to the wrong place. So having moved into the new office, we then decided to have uh, an open submission window of just a few weeks when we received a few thousand submissions. A few thousand. Which have taken us some time to get through. Uh, I think we originally said we'd be done by June. It's now the 1st of December, and we are just down to the last handful. So we're getting there. But um, So at the moment, we are not open to direct submissions, but my feeling is we will probably quietly reopen continuously at some point in the near future, and we won't make an announcement. We'll just update our website, and at that point, uh, people can start just sending them in again. And we'll do what we used to do, which is every two or three months when the pile gets too big, take an afternoon and go through them. That's my opinion. I have okay. not yet confirmed this with the rest no, of the no. team. Okay. So when you say continues. Not that you're definitely going to do any of that, but um, so that isn't that you're going to have a submissions window. No, as such. we will just, just going to be open. If anybody bothers to look, they'll see a note in the website yeah. that you're open. With our to, address yes. and what to do. Okay. Um, so, but in terms of the stuff that came through in that submission mm. period, the really obvious stuff is look at what we publish. We're a genre publisher. We're not interested in things which aren't genre. So don't just send it in because you see an announcement somewhere saying, oh, look, Glance is open. You go, brilliant, they're exactly the right people for my humorous crime novel, because we're not. Uh, secondary to that is read the guidelines. If we say 50 pages, we mean 
probably 48 to 52. We're not monsters. We're not going to throw you out if you send us 51. But at the same time, we put those things there for a reason, and we'd quite like you to follow them. Uh, and then getting into the more the more nitty-gritty stuff, um, find someone who's not read your book before to read through the submission, because they will spot the typos that you've missed repeatedly. And we all know that typos happen in everything. I doubt I've ever published a book that didn't have a typo in it somewhere. But still, if they're glaring and they're on the first page of your submission, to me that says you didn't read it through again before it came in. It's not the end of the world. Of course we'll read past it, but the author is should be treating it as a job interview. And you need to be as professional as you can. Uh, and then we start going into the, the slightly more personal stuff. Um, a surprising amount of stuff in that last passage did not seem to have moved in the terms of gender politics on from about 1973. There was quite a lot of not particularly good descriptions of women's breasts, uh, often for no particularly good reason other than the woman in question is standing in front of a mirror admiring them, which is, I, I'm told, not something that happens on a regular basis. Um, there were quite a lot of gruesome rapes. There's a place for that, arguably, in certain stories. Whatever you are doing, there needs to be a reason for it. And mm. if it's unpleasant and you're doing it just to shock or to weirdly titillate, or to provoke a reaction, and you're not dealing with the implications well and thoughtfully and carefully, then you need to be very careful. And that's not just sexual violence. It's also violence to a certain extent. It's 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 language. It's all of those things. But it, it was a real thing that we would be sitting around reading these submissions, and you just see someone recoil from a manuscript because for no particularly good reason there's a graphic rape. And you go, well, we don't need that. We don't really want to do that. Not to say it doesn't have a place, not to say it can't be done well, but mostly it is to say that those things. And then it's more difficult in terms of agented submissions. I mean, almost by definition, if an agent has seen it and taken an author on and then thought about who to send it to and then sent it to one of us, they've probably got a pretty good idea that it's in our our yeah. area. I mean, you know... You'd hope so, wouldn't you, yeah. from an agent? I mean, it's slightly interesting. I mean, not that I mean to pick out Americans, but I think it's just because we don't have the face-to-face relationships, quite often we do find that we're on mailing lists for certain American agencies who just send everything that they have, which is vaguely genre-related, without thinking about whether it would be better for me or Gillian or Rachel or whatever. But that's that's not the end of the world. Um, yeah, I mean, agency stuff, I, I, there's nothing I particularly would, would want to highlight. I, I think, you know, the stuff comes in and you read it, and obviously if it comes from an agent who you've dealt with repeatedly before and get on with and who knows your taste, then you're going to be perhaps more likely to engage with it. It's more likely to fit with our tastes if it's come Mm. from someone who knows what our tastes are. For people who are coming to you directly, so not through an agent, most of them won't know who the individuals are here in terms of the commission team. No, absolutely. Um, Would you want people to try and find out who the different commissioning editors are and what their preferences are or would you rather we just send stuff in uh i think do a bit of research absolutely um i mean all of our details are up on the glance blog there's an indication on there of which authors we publish yeah. if you feel that your book would be best served by being published by the by stephen baxter's editor for good reasons then send it to stephen baxter's editor that, i think that absolutely makes sense as long as you have a reason for it mm. um I think equally, it's entirely reasonable to send it in saying, look, I'm not sure which of you to send it to. It is this one line description. Would you please, amongst yourselves, make that decision? Um, But the fact is, especially when we have a big open submission period, as we did last year, we tend to put them in a pile in the middle of a table and take the next one off. And if if the letter says, I'm sending this to Marcus because I emailed him about it, or we interacted on Twitter, or we met at a convention, then of course, that'll get past you. But I'm assuming you don't want people phoning you up. Saying what do you, what do you, which of you does which? Probably not. I mean, a, a polite email is never the end of the world. 
Okay. I, you know, I've got no issue with that. I mean, okay. our email addresses are out there. And, yeah. you know, if we make a point of going to, I mean, particularly the SF conventions, because that's our, our thing. But we go and talk to creative writing classes. And absolutely in the expectation that some of the people we meet will want to send us a book. Yeah. And that's okay. fine. Uh, it, as with all things, I think be polite. And we're not going to, you know. <laughs> well, you know, but, but we have others, you know, there are people who aren't. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Especially when you say no, which, frankly, we're probably going to do. Yeah. We don't pick up very many books at all in terms of new writers. We pick up not a great proportion of those from the slush pile. It does happen, but the most likely, the most likely response is going to be thanks, but no thanks, and maybe with a few pointers. Mm. But you know, I'd argue that's quite a good thing as well. Yeah. So just treat you with consideration and respect. Yeah. Yes, and also um, forgive the amount of time it may take us to get to it. So without indulging in favouritism, mm. are there any particular titles that you've worked on that perhaps have come out recently or are coming out soon? That for you have been real, real gems, and you you would want to advocate them. Yes, and, and there's a couple of things which spring to mind. One is Stephen Baxter has written a sequel to War of the Worlds mm-hmm. called The Massacre of Mankind, authorized by the H.G. Wells estate. I'm hugely excited by that. I love War of the Worlds. Steve is a great writer, um, and it's just done so well. It, it takes Wells's book and and makes it feel. I'm sorry, he's not rewriting it. it. You know, it makes it feel modern while still feeling mm. like mm. Wells could have written it. Um, so, I mean, you know, in, in that sense, be an author with a great track record and come up with an idea for a sequel to a really famous book. Um, equally, we... He still had to do it well, though, didn't he? Well, he still had to do it well, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Um, equally, we're, um, David Gemmell's widow Stella found a manuscript in his archives that she didn't know was there. So we've got an unpublished David Gemmell novel. Ah, okay. It is a crime novel. Right. With supernatural elements. Um, we are also republishing, uh, he wrote a crime novel in the 80s which went out under a pseudonym, um, which has been unavailable for many years. And so we're republishing that as well. But actually, to get to work on a Gemmel, yeah. it was pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, in terms of other stuff, I, I mean, we're always looking for people who do something. I mean, we, we read a lot of genre fiction. We read the stuff we publish. We read the stuff our friends and competitors publish. We yeah. read stuff that comes in on submission. We read stuff that we like because we all got into this because yeah. we like this stuff. So I do need a book at times to nah, not challenge me, but to, to, but to do something I either haven't seen before or if I have seen it before to do it so well that it feels like I've not seen it before. So a couple of things. Um, Tom Lloyd's new fantasy series, Stranger of Tempest is, um, the series is called The God Fragments, but book one is The Stranger of Tempest. We published that in July this year and paperback is next year. Um, sorry. It's currently 2016. So <laughs> just, it felt like fantasy that I really wanted to read yeah. because although it didn't do anything particularly amazingly unusual or unseen before, it was so confident and so well done and so zippy and pacey. Um, that I just, you know, I fell in love with it. Yeah. Uh, equally, there's an author called Alex Lamb who writes hard science fiction who um, it just blew me away. The ideas, it gave me the feeling I got when I'm reading um, an Al Reynolds or uh, even going back to my childhood, reading like a Larry Niven or something, yeah. where there's just, the ideas are bursting off the page. There's this whole universe of stuff and it's amazing and you don't really know what half of it is, but that's okay because you're pretty sure the author knows and the science is, yeah. if not right, then at least waving in the direction of being right. Credible. Credible, yes. Yeah. And, that, you know, that just gave me the feeling of reading really good science fiction from a new voice. Um, Edward Cox's Relic Guild, when that first came in on submission, um, I just, it had a structure, it had a a flashback structure, which we've seen before, but done so well and interwoven so cleverly. So the information you got from bits of it completely fed into the other strand of the story, but not in a way that felt fake. Just, it was so well done. And also all my other authors... (laughs) 
If I haven't mentioned your name, it's because um, it's because they got cut out by Andrew. Sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that be. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Thanks very much, Marcus. That was mm. great. I've had my half an hour. No, not at all. Um, very, very that, was really, that was interesting stuff, and that was good. Last but not least, my final conversation is with Jen McMenemy, Galance's marketing manager. So, Jen, um, <laughs> why don't you introduce yourself for us and tell us a little bit what you do. Hi, uh, I'm Jen McManamy. Excuse the croaky voice. <laughs> I'm clearly coming down with something. Uh, I work in the Orion and Glance marketing departments. So um, I do a lot of the really cool advertising that you see. Uh, I'm on the Glance social media quite a lot. Uh, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, I work really closely with the editors and our sales team and publicity team to bring you very exciting and engaging campaigns to let you know that our books are out in the world. And, uh, yeah. So, in fact, tell me a little bit more about all these cool marketing campaigns that you do. Can you give me an example of one, maybe, (laughs) and the kind of things that you get up to here? Um, It's so varied. That's one of the questions I get asked quite a lot, and I'm like... How do I start? Because some days I start in the morning and I think my day is going to go one way and then it goes a completely different way um, because marketing um, work on so many different projects. So I might be starting in the morning thinking, oh, I'm going to do all the social media posting for the week. So um, I do a lot of the scheduled activity, uh, giveaways, all that, all the exciting things that Pete, the consumers see and go oh, yes, must buy this, or, oh, I want to win this. Um, but sometimes my day will start off thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to do this, and all of a sudden I'm briefing a proof or a video. I've done quite a few trailers last year. Okay. Um, animated GIFs. Um, animated GIFs? GIFs, yeah. Wow, what's an animated GIF? An animated GIF? Yeah. Oh, GIF. GIF. I thought you said yeah, GIF. No, it's my all accent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably good you ask, because I'm sure there's someone listening going, what, did she just say gifts? There'll be some, Why would she do that? Yeah, well, there might be some people listening going, what's a gift? So do you want to tell us what a gift is? <laughs> so a gift is an animation that you, um, like an animated book jacket. So if you look at a book jacket online and sometimes the words disappear or come back on or it's snowing or it wears a Santa hat when it's Christmas, that's probably a gift. <laughs> we are recording right around Christmas, so... Yeah. So yeah, so sometimes it's that. I mean, it could be anything. I've I've had days where I've been off on shoots. I've met uh, authors. I've gone all over the place. I went to travel to America um, to uh, interview some of our authors. So it's quite varied what we do. Mm. Um, I think some of my favorite campaigns. Um, I mean, I always love briefing a very big campaign that I know you're going to see on the tube or on the internet or other things like that. But my all-time favorite campaign that I talk about all the time is the Glance Festival. That is a huge project that generally takes about a year to um, put into place. Um, It started in 2014. Um, and we've done three so far. They all go together eventually. Um, and it's just, it's my favorite thing because it brings our authors to readers and it lets them talk to the readers. It lets them be a part of the conversation and it works for people coming to the 
physical events in the bookshops and for people online. And I just think it's just amazing to be able to bring people together like that. Um, and marketing do all of the behind the scenes things that you're like, how did that happen? Like mm. getting your website ready to sell your tickets, promoting the events, mm. doing your newsletters, the scheduling of all the digital activities, all the point of sale, which is the promotional material that you get, uh, all the cool bags, posters, all that kind of stuff. So, so really that's a very big campaign and a lot of fun. Um, and probably something people have seen already. And it encompasses sort of all of the things that I probably do, including make videos. So actually you're, you're, you're working across all channels. You're not just on digital or broadcast or whatever. You, yeah. you have to, you have to be a boss of all those channels. You really do. I mean, yeah. I've had this conversation with a few of my cousins who are just leaving college. And my biggest things I tell them are, especially if they're like, I want an English degree. I'm like, okay, it's great. Learn Photoshop, <laughs> learn to design, um, <laughs> know some coding. Cause those are all things that I would like to go back and tell 21 year old me to do. Right. Cause okay. you do need to have some understanding cause you will deal talk with to designers you'll talk to people across lots of various industries and the more you understand what you're doing or what they're doing the easier those conversations will be and it would have saved me a lot of headaches about five (laughs) years ago (laughs) do you get involved in the acquisitions meetings that kind of thing I do sometimes. Um, sometimes the marketing department will um, be sent a really exciting title by editorial and we'll give it a read and we will usually say, oh my God, we have to buy this, can we please buy this? Um, which is what editorial want to hear. And sometimes they will say yes. And sometimes they will say yes, but we need to do a pitch. And so the marketing department will create an amazing pitch for the author. And those can take the shape of um, PowerPoint documents. I once did a box filled with a hand mirror um, with some writing on it and all kinds of creepy things so the yeah. pitches is, is another big part yeah. of my day that when I think I'm going in to do my social scheduling I'm all of a sudden told nope we're going to do a pitch today and I go oh I like that let's do that <laughs> now when you say pitch do you mean an internal pitch to, to whether you take the title or not do you mean when you're pitching to the big wide world to the big to the author and agent usually okay because sometimes okay. the book has so much enthusiasm and excitement that we're not the only ones who want it. Uh, and obviously okay. we need to convince them we are the best home. Because we are the best home. So you're actually you're pitching to the author or their agent or both to say, come to our publishing yeah. house, we'll look after you, it'll be great. Okay. If an ed- editorial come to you with an idea or they've got a book and they're raving about it, um, what do you want to see that would persuade you? Or how do, how do you make a judgment about whether you would agree with them? part of what I think I'm a specialist in in some areas is knowing what else is out in the market, what else is like this. So if an editor comes to me and says, I really love this book, give it a read. Hmm. First off, I always give it a read because if they love it, they're they're the knowledge, they're the experts, they know. Um, so if I'm feeling the book and I really love it, then I will go back and say, it's amazing. It reminds me of this and this and this, and this is how this sold. And this is what this did. So I can't try and think of comparable things to help them if, you know, cause they will have to eventually pitch it to um, people internally. So I always try to say, oh, it reminds me of this and give a lot of positive enthusiasm. If they find something that they love, And for whatever reason, it's not my cup of tea. I will go, it's not my cup of tea, but it's exactly like this and this and this. And they've done brilliantly because I love a lot of things, but I don't love all the things. And, you know, taste is so subjective. Yeah, that's true. So from your point of view, then, what does the ideal author do to help themselves? Once, if their book's been bought, 
and they need to work with you guys, they need to work mm-hmm. with publicity, they need to work with the business. What do you want from your authors to make that work successfully? First off, congratulations. We're really happy to work with you. <laughs> um, I really think that the best thing an author can do, from my point of view, is think about themselves and how they found their favorite authors. So I always talk to authors. Um, I recently was talking to one about this. And I said, the most important thing you can have right now is a website. Because if somebody sees news that your book has been bought and they go to Google you and they can't find you and they can't find your book or, you know, they can't find anything about you, then they're not going to know very much. So I always think the most important, I'm not talking, you have to spend a lot of money. I think have a blog, have a whatever. I would say, depending on the author, depending on their comfort level, being on social media is wonderful, especially in the genre community. There's so many lovely people and, you know, get yourself on Twitter, follow people and see what they're doing. My, what I always say to authors in the beginning is, if you're not comfortable posting yet, take a look at the different platforms and see which one actually matches your personality. Mm. For some people, it is Twitter. They love the conversation. They love talking about what they've watched, what they're doing, mm. what other people are doing. And for some people, it's Instagram or it's Facebook or it's, you know, a long form blog or it's um, vlogging, which is video blogging uh, or podcasting. It really depends on the people. Mm. Um, on, on the author themselves. So I think that's really important. And I always, I always say, have a look, see what people are doing and see what you like, what you think is you like about it, what's working and also see what isn't working. You know, when you join Twitter, there are, there are many people out there who will follow you, especially if you've got anything to do with publishing in your name, um, or in your bio and they will be trying to flog you their book. And that is the biggest no, no. The first thing you get from a person shouldn't be, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. Because you know they're not a real authentic person and part of following people on social media is getting to know them and getting to know their journey. And as a debut author, as a new author, that is one of the things you get to bring people along with you on social media. And it's always a really nice process to watch. So my advice to help yourself and to help me, have a presence, have a website that people can go to um, have an open communication with your marketing and publicity and editorial about what you're comfortable doing, whether it's, I don't really want to be on social media, but I want to write lots of articles about this. Fine. Your publisher will have a place we can do that. Or I don't really like social media, but I'd be happy to record some interviews. Fine. We can, depending on your publisher, we can, we can work with that. So it is very much a dialogue of how to work best with you. Um, And, in the genre, I know probably my colleague Stevie might have talked about this, going to different genre conventions, meeting people. Um, uh, my, I've got a really good friend. He's a writer. And one of the things she did was she went to her local bookshop and just introduced herself and said, I've got this book coming out and I'd really love, you know, maybe to do something with you at a later date. So being very proactive and also bringing to the table the people you know and the things you're happy to do because a lot of people, you know, it's about your comfort level and what you're going to excel that okay so it sounds it does sound like you are you're engaging with the author in terms of what 
can you and can't you do? Mm-hmm. What are you comfortable with? What you're not comfortable with? We'll take, try and tailor something around mm-hmm. what that is. Okay. Um, it's always quite different. It's always tailored yeah. to what the book needs and what the author needs. Some things are really digital. Some things are physical. Some things are about having samplers and point of sale and different yeah. retailers. Some things are about, are about being online and making sure that the book is seen where it needs to be seen online to encourage pre-orders or pre-awareness or people just knowing about the book and also buying the book later. Sometimes the strategy has to do with the ebook pricing. It's all very, you know, you could have me for hours talking about it. <laughs> Get well, I'm interested in, in what you've got to say about this. So is there a separate sales team here? Mm-hmm. So you, you must, it, from what you're saying, it sounds like you must work quite closely with the sales people. Yeah. So what would you do versus what would they, or what would they do that you wouldn't do? How does, how does is there a, is it a fuzzy demarcation between the two? It's very much a conversation. Marketing and publicity and sales and editorial all work very closely together. Um, because the, in, in a digital world, the way everything is now, you just can't not. So, you know, sales will work with the retailers, with the pricing structure for the retailers mm. and with the different promotions that, that they can have mm. that we can offer. And then marketing will work with sales to support them with what they need. That might be different point of sale to let people know about the pricing. It might be advertising about the pricing. It might be newsletters so people know it's happening. A social media campaign. It, it very much varies on what's going on and how that, when it's happening and how we can make the most of it. So, I mean, our job is sort of to amplify um, all of the amazing things that our sales force secure and to work with publicity in the most effective way to do that. So that's real team effort, isn't it? I guess it's yeah. And editorial as well, because so much of what has to happen with price drops has to do with author and agent and Mm. making sure we have permission. So absolutely nothing um, isn't a team effort. Okay. You mentioned Galance Fest Mm -hmm. uh, earlier on, which um, Stevie mentioned uh, when I talked to her. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Galance Fest? Um, so Glance Fest is the UK's first, um, I guess, after after three years now, the longest running um, bookshop and digital festival. Um, it is a the past few ones have been over several days. Uh, it is a digital festival online ahead of the public ahead of the. Um, head of the bookshop events and then there's bookshop events mm. we've worked with foils and yep. uh, we've also worked with waterstones okay. and we've worked with various other partners like arts picture house and the prince charles cinema so okay. we have done lots of different things but the main um, idea behind the festival is to bring readers and authors together so it's a it's a wonderful day of author panels, um, discussions about the genre, discussions about publishing, and it's a a good chance for readers to get to meet some of their favorite authors. Um, We also have a separate strand that is just for writing. So we ran it for the first time in 2015, and we've repeated it uh, in 2016. And it's a day focusing on writers, writers getting advice from authors, Mm -hmm. writers... um, hearing more about the journey to publication and the the wider world out there. And it's been 
I hope I'm not just saying this, but it feels like it's been incredibly successful. Um, I know it's been incredibly successful. Um, and we really think it's just such a, a novel way to bring people together. And it's um, very much price-based. So we know a lot of larger conventions and festivals have a barrier to entry, which has to do with the price. Mm-hmm. So we've kept our prices low so that people can attend because we don't want to be in a position where people want to attend but can't and all of our digital events are free and the panel events we have either put up on YouTube or we're in the process of putting them up as podcasts cool okay so yeah I mean I went to the I went to one last year yeah which looked well attended (laughs) actually the room looked full it was sold out (laughs) yeah and it it was it was pretty cheap I mean it's cheaper than going to a convention isn't it yeah obviously Um, that was great yeah. It's good stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the hope, and, and it was just, you know, uh, uh, bringing more people in, mm. you know, because conventions are amazing and wonderful, and I love conventions. But I do think sometimes um, it's kind of getting people who may or may not have attended a convention because of price. Mm. Just mm. on conventions, do you think new fans, new readers find conventions a bit daunting? I mean... I think they are kind of daunting. I think they're really, really big. I'm uh, relatively new to learning about the genre. Uh, I haven't been to tons of conventions. I've been to some really big ones. And you do find them a bit difficult to know where to go and who to watch and what to see. So the nice thing about the festival is it's a bit of a gateway convention. Mm. You can go to it. You can get a really nice feeling for what a convention feels like without going to a huge convention. Um, It's still quite small. It's quite intimate. Um... Well, it's not that small. <laughs> she says, thinking about the amount of tickets we sold last time, but it's it's not. You know, it's it's a it's it's a different feel to it. It's yeah, much more like a like it? a yeah. festival, yeah. and it allows you to dip in and out. And you can do that at conventions. Yeah. And I wonder if you've got any advice for people who are going to to bigger conventions. So, like, if the people, somebody wants to go to EasterCon or they want to go to I don't know Nine Worlds or whatever they want to go to, <laughs> what would you say to people who? are think about doing that how had who are you mm. don't 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 know the way around yet um first and foremost eat a big breakfast <laughs> because it's a really long day yeah. um and you may want to see something that's happening over lunch um yes. the most yeah. important thing you can do is uh print off either you know either from the the website or uh, a lot of times i'll give you the the pack when you get there, make sure you look at everything, look at the timing of everything, and then decide what you want to do. Mm. If it's listed ahead of time, try and do it ahead of time, because once you get there, you may change your mind or things might be different. Mm. People at conventions are really nice. You'll meet really nice people waiting in line. And if you pick things to attend that's based on your interest, I guarantee you I've got some really good friends waiting in lines for different mm. convention events because they're all excited to, you know, hear this author talk. And you're like, I'm excited to hear this. Well, of course, we're both excited to hear the same author talk we're in the line for that event so i mean i think it is quite a good uh environment it's very inclusive and there's there's no reason not to get out there and do it but try and plan your day well eat a good breakfast because you will need it maybe just pack some snacks um and you know just enjoy it if you're on social media it's a great time to be tweeting and sharing and discussing what's going on you may actually find people in the in the audience who are doing the same i've live tweeted many times for different accounts i've worked on in orion when i was at um a convention and you do find people who even look over at you and go oh your view is better than mine (laughs) where are you sitting i'll be like zoom (laughs) 
Sally, you mentioned social media earlier on. I just wanted to just pick mm. up on that. What advice would you have for people who maybe maybe they've got mm. stuff out there and they're really tempted to say, "Look at my stuff, look at my stuff," mm-hmm. but it's on so. But they're talking on social media. They're mm-hmm. engaging with other people. Yeah. What's the advice that you'd give people who? What's what's the etiquette? Or what's the best advice on engaging on social media? I mean, the best advice I have for people on social media is think about the way you want to be talked to. You know, if you have a book that you really want to promote, that's fine. Everyone has things they want to promote on social media. You know, it's fine to tweet about your book once or twice a day. I mean, really, once a day is enough. Um, But you shouldn't be from, you know, just from a total etiquette, you shouldn't be spamming new people who are following you about your book. If it comes up in conversation, I think that's fine. I I think a lot of times when one of the best places on social media for information about your book is your bio, because the first thing I do when someone follows me is look at their bio. And if they've got a lot of if they've got books in their bio, I'll immediately go and look and see what those books are. Then I will sort of decide I don't want to follow off. I'll say, do I want to follow you back or not follow you back? Mm. What do I want to do? And sometimes, you know, if, if I look at their feed, which I do quite a lot, but again, I'm not your average person, you know, because I do this all day. Yeah. If I look at your feed and two thirds of your feed are, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, I'm probably not going to follow you because I, you know... I just, that's too much book buying for me. Mm. But I really enjoy when authors and who are published or self-published talk about their book, talk about the process of writing their book, talk about the research behind their book. Then when they talk about, they engage in a conversation, they give me really interesting thought pieces about stuff. Mm. Um, And, you know, yeah, if you wrote a book and it's all about the current American election, now is probably the time to say buy my book. It is, because mm. that's what people are talking mm. about. So um, if your book is cheap and on sale for whatever reason, yeah, you can tweet about it. That's, that's so the time to do it. relevant and topical. Mm. Yeah, talk about it. Okay. Yeah. But remember, treat the people who are following you the way you'd want to be treated. If you would follow people who tweet all the time about their book and how cheap it is, then that's fine. But if that's not the way you would do it, there are better ways to get your message across, including paid for advertising on social media, which a lot of people don't talk about. But a little bit of money invested in that will get you so much further mm. than um, spamming people. So it's coming back to actually this theme has come up a lot mm. in talking to people. Treat people with consideration and a bit yeah. of respect and talk to them as you would expect yeah. to be talked to. All things we all learn when we're five years old, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's not difficult. <laughs> it's not difficult. <laughs> just to finish then, are there any books that you've worked on recently that either you just loved reading and you just want to say, I love this book, <laughs> and or that you just had a great time promoting and just really enjoyed the kind of marketing campaign process? This one's pretty easy. I just got to make trees for Ben Aronovich's The Hanging Tree. They're like about, <laughs> you can't see them, but imagine like those little Christmas trees you put on your table. Yeah. That's the size of them. Okay. Um, and that was that was an amazing, uh, really fun experience to work on. Ben Aronovich is a really lovely author, and we were able to do so much. Um, the, we recorded things with the audiobook reader, and it's just a, just a blast on all fronts. And if you've not read the PC Peter Grant series, now is the time to pick them up. They make the perfect Christmas present. They go in range from your, you know, I don't know, 16-year-old cousin to your granny. I'm not kidding. Everyone has read these books. Um, what are they called again? The PC Peter Grant series. The first one is Rivers of London. Okay. So start with Rivers of London and then Moon Over Soho, Whispers Underground, Broken Homes, Foxglove Summer, and The Hanging Tree. So that's that's a top tip. And that's from? Ben Aronovich. Okay. Um, 
Another book that I would highly recommend, this one is outside of genre, is Sarah Pinver's 13 Minutes. Yeah. It is a really good psychological thriller about, um, it, I mean, the, the, the quote on the cover, which says, Mean Girls uh, Meets the Secret History, really says it all. So if you like Mean Girls, if you like the secret history, it's a really twisty turny. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going to love it. I really enjoyed Connie Willis's Crosstalk which is a very heartwarming book. Mm. Um, it's really interesting about the uh, the way in which social media impacts our life, as well as the way phones impact our life and the way all this constant communication really has changed how we are as people. Um, but it's also a romantic comedy. So it's a perfect Christmas gift for light SF readers, for your mom, for your sister. It's really good fun. And because it's Christmas time, I'm going to give you another one outside of genre. And that's Rainbow Rowell's Landline, which is a little genre element in that this woman finds an old phone in her parents' house while she's having a particularly difficult time uh, with her family Mm -hmm. around Christmas that lets her dial her husband when they were back in college. And it's an interesting look at their relationship. (laughs) It is set around Christmas time, so that's why I had to recommend it. And that one again is called? Landline by Rainbow Rowell. That's it. I mean, Sharp Ends is amazing if you've not picked up Joe Abercrombie's yeah, short story collection. Yeah. The Name of the Wind is incredible. Patrick Rothfuss' yes. Name of the Wind. Yeah. I'm a really big fan of the Charlene Harris' True Blood uh, Suki Stackhouse series, starting with uh, Dead Until Dark. Um, I'm sure I'm missing someone. I always feel bad when I like have to recommend <laughs> things. I'm like, I'm going to forget something. Joanne Harris' Ruin, Ruin Marks, which is out now. Ruin yeah. Marks. I always say Ruin, but it is Ruin, R-U-N-E. Marks, all one. Rude, okay. Rude marks, yeah. Um, it's brilliant. It's um about Norse mythology. Um, it's absolutely amazing. If you enjoyed her Gospel of Loki, yeah. then you'll really enjoy this book. Cool. And if you didn't read the Gospel of Loki, then you should be reading it right now <laughs> while I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there's more, but I'm just gonna. You love all your authors. I do. I love all my authors. They're all brilliant, and I think they're gonna forgive me because I sound. Like a croaking toad. I'm dying a little bit, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better we better leave leave yeah. stop you talking then. I know, keep my voice. <laughs> yeah, keep some voice. Okay, well Jen, thanks very much for your time. That's been great. Thank you. So that's it. I hope you found these conversations interesting and informative. This episode was made possible by some very busy people who were kind enough to give up some of their time to speak to me. And they were Stevie Finnegan, press officer, Marcus Gipps, senior commissioning editor, Jen McMenemy, marketing manager, and the person who indulged my persistent inquiries and organised the interviews for me, Gillian Redfern, the publishing director of Galantz. My sincere thanks to you all. You can find out more about Galantz at their website, which is Galantz, G-O-L-L-A-N-C-Z dot co dot UK. You can follow them on Twitter at Galantz. And if you're a reader or writer in the genres of the fantastic, check out the Galantz Festival, an annual event with author panels, discussions and author signings. Go to galantzfest.co.uk to sign up for more information. So that's it for this episode. Thank you again for listening. And until next time. Goodbye.